All right, we are back. Let's talk about maybe some deep politics and some general chicanery going on out there. Um, starting with a piece from the editorial board of the Sacramento Bee about how the merchants of death should be reined in. Last month, the United Nations uh, made a vote on, uh, on the global arms trade, and I think I'm going to quote here from the piece, which notes that, according to the good people of the Sacramento Bee, its value may turn out to be as much symbolic as practical, yet the UN General Assembly sent a resounding message by passing the first set of ground rules on the global arms trade. Tuesday's action put the world community on record that a wide array of weapons should not be sold, <laughs> should not be sold if they're going to be used to commit atrocities, enable genocide, or aid terrorism, which sounds fair enough. Notes that countries would also agree to crack down on letting weapons get into the black market. Noted the B, as it is, the international arms trade is a corrupt and bloody business. We would also refer you to our discussion we had on Victor Boot, the Russian arms trader. We spoke with uh, Los Angeles Times writer Stephen Brown about his book, Merchant of Death, about Mr. Boot, who's now in prison. Let's just say there's a lot that could be said about the international arms trade, but going back to the editorial piece, it said that each year, Experts say $70 billion worth of tanks, artillery, missiles, helicopters, rifles, and other conventional weapons are bought and sold, often illegally. They know you don't have to look far to see their deadly toll. So far, 70,000 people have been killed in the civil war in Syria, which is not under a UN arms embargo. I remember getting a lot of flack, by the way, from um, a prediction we made on this program that uh, the neocons were salivating to get at Syria which they were and I think still are. We predicted that it was liable to happen not long after the Iraq war, and uh, I guess it depends on how you define not long after, but um, I think that is what's going on there, and I know I'm not alone in that, but that is definitely a topic for another day. But um, the piece in the bee notes that the vote was an overwhelming 154 to 3, while three major arms sellers, China, India, and, and Russia, abstained from voting, the United States, by far the world's biggest arms exporter, voted in favor. I'm guessing they're not thinking there's going to be a whole lot of enforcement here. Peace notes that government agencies and groups, including the American Bar Association, that have studied the agreement, said it would not infringe on the right to bear arms or restrict domestic gun sales. Nonetheless... And you know this is coming. The National Rifle Association is adamantly opposed, which means the U.S. Senate appears unlikely to ratify it anytime soon. The B notes this is another sign of the outsized power of the pro-gun lobby over our politicians. The three no votes, by the way, if you're keeping score, Iran, North Korea, and Syria. And can someone please look into who funds the National Rifle Association? Uh, you know, they have a lot of money to be an effective uh, lobbying group, and that, that, that doesn't come cheap. And it's just assumed that the NRA is some sort of uh, grassroots organization. Let's just say that Radio Parallax has its suspicions. Suspicions that are not uh, being put to rest by um, <laughs> the goings-on at the U.N., and, and speaking of international arms merchants, I think it's time to quote from a, a piece we've been holding on to since last month by Trudy Rubin from the Philadelphia Inquirer, from the op-ed pages of the B. I took this. It was titled, Yes, There Were Winners in Iraq, Federal Contractors. Noted Miss Rubin, 
Two weeks ago, on the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War, I wrote a column that laid out the losers in the conflict. I argued there were still no clear winners. One reader responded that there were obvious winners, the private civilian contractors who provided security and supplies for the war effort, and they were paid tens of billions of dollars by the U.S. government. A hefty chunk of those billions was wasted due to overbilling, shoddy work, and fraud. She noted the reader was correct, though I disagree with his assertion that we began the war in order to fuel the military-industrial complex. He fingered an important problem. Our military and civilian agencies seem unable to conduct massive nation-building efforts in war zones effectively. (laughs) Duh. In 2011, a bipartisan congressional commission estimated that between $31 billion and $60 billion of the $206 billion paid to contractors since the start of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars has been wasted. The heart of the problem, said the Commission on Wartime Contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan, and who knew there was such a commission, is excessive reliance on badly supervised private contractors engaging in, quote, vast amounts of spending for no benefit, unquote. Ms. Rubin goes on to quote Stuart Bowen, Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, whose agency, referred to as SIGIR, S-I-G-I-R, has documented the failings of Iraq Reconstruction and some of its most egregious contractor fraud. Speaking at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, Bowen warned, we have yet to learn our lessons from Iraq or Afghanistan when it comes to nation-building under fire. I guess Mr. Bowen is assuming this is a legitimate effort. Rubin notes that in Iraq, our reliance on contractors to provide many of the services that used to be carried out by grunts in the regular army permitted the military to hold on the number of troops sent into the country and also permitted the government to go to war without reinstituting a draft. The Congressional Budget Office estimated in 2008 at the height of the war that one out of every $5 spent on the Iraqi war had gone to contractors. At that point, the contracts were worth about $85 billion. The contractors, if you're keeping score, employed about 180,000 people in Iraq, which was a a second private army larger than the U.S. military force in the country. The biggest benefactor, she notes, was Kellogg, Brown & Root, or KBR, then a subsidiary of Halliburton, whose CEO from 1995 to 2000, oddly enough, was Dick Cheney. KBR, as we've recounted on this program previously, received huge no-bid government contracts and reaped tens of billions of dollars for its Iraq work. When a highly placed Pentagon procurement officer tried to blow the whistle on some KBR contracts, she got drummed out of her job in 2005. In 2009, Halliburton did agree to pay the U.S. government to settle corruption charges linked to KBR. It had to pay the the exorbitant fee of $559 million. Rubin notes the most frustrating aspect of the contracting problem is that it was so obvious from the start of the Iraq War. With so much money flowing into Iraq, often in bricks of cash, almost any scamster could qualify as a contractor and reap millions, such as the two adventurers who won a $16 million contract to guard the Baghdad airport, even though they had no experience. But it's got to be better in Afghanistan, right? Our good war? Well, you do have to wonder about the news story that broke earlier this month, that um, the CIA has been flinging tens of millions of dollars in cash to President Hamid Karzai 
to buy influence in Afghanistan. It doesn't appear to be uh, (laughs) a good purchase. Much of the money, which Karzai has admitted receiving, has gone to warlords who have ties to the drug trade. Or the Taliban. Remember them? Members of Congress were outraged by this news. Representative Jason Chaffetz, Republican of Utah, said, I thought we were trying to clean up waste, fraud, and abuse in Afghanistan. Well, not necessarily, Representative Chaffetz. We want to refer you to another fine editorial piece from Elias Grohl from Foreign Policy, noting that the CIA's bags of cash can set the stage for chaos and violence. Regrettably, I don't have time to read a great deal from this piece, but you might want to look it up on the Internet. That's Elias Grohl, G-R-O-L-L, from Foreign Policy. He notes how uh, what seems to be success in the beginning doesn't always pan out in the long term. He notes that's become an all-too-familiar pattern with the agency's history. Referring back to 1953, when the CIA succeeded in overthrowing Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran, it was regarded as the agency's finest moment. In one fell swoop, the CIA had stymied Soviet influence in the Middle East and secured a vital portion of the global oil supplies. It gave the agency the impression that its freewheeling agents could topple governments on a whim, not unlike how the CIA brought down the Taliban in Afghanistan, and that American dollars could keep American interests safe. At some point in this show, we're going to take a look back at, uh, at what happened in Iran back in 1953 because um, it's a story you should know about. And speaking of feudal wars, uh, let's quote from the Sacramento News and Review, piece by Rahim Hosseini about the war on the war on drugs. Referring to documentary filmmaker Eugene Jarecki's visit to Sacramento to lobby for criminal justice reform. Go quote from the beginning of the piece. Remember the war on drugs? Yep, it's still going on. It's been more than 40 years since Richard Nixon declared the pusher man as public enemy number one. If you're wondering how successful a campaign it's been, that depends on your definition. Drug addiction's never been more entrenched, and there's an entire generation of black Americans that's lived under police occupation. But it's been a boon to tough-talking politicians and a commoditized criminal justice industry, but a resounding failure just about everywhere else. Hosseini notes Eugene Jarecki's trenchant new documentary, The House I Live In autopsies our decades-spanning campaign and shows how far this cancer has spread. He told the Sacramento News and Review, it was a misguided accident of history. We learned this in Prohibition. We just decided to act like idiots and repeat history again. We'll continue to talk about our feudal war on drugs in future programs. But speaking of uh, prisoners, I just have to comment a bit about this... uh, This item from the miscellaneous file, item from last week, apparently a jailhouse leader pled not guilty to charges of overseeing a corruption ring involving female correctional officers, four of whom he impregnated. As leader of the Black Gorilla Family Gang, Tavon White, age 36, allegedly ran a massive racketeering scheme, this is in Baltimore, which smuggled marijuana, painkillers, and cell phones into prisons. A total of 25 defendants faced charges in the case. White is recorded saying in an intercepted phone call, anything that gets done must go through me. But the irresistible part about this story, I think, is that White also allegedly impregnated four 
of the correctional officers implicated in the indictment, two of whom have his name tattooed on their bodies. Criminal justice expert Martin Horn (laughs) commented that the prison system houses, quote, highly manipulative inmates who are in some ways more sophisticated than the staff who are watching them, unquote. Well, yes, apparently so. Now, Jay Leno, his monologue made reference to the fact that apparently they paid this guy to have sex with him. I don't know if it's true, but it led Jay to ask, how big a loser do you have to be if you're a woman prison guard who has to pay a guy in prison to have sex with you? And doggone it, we really shouldn't do stories like this one, but oh well. Let's do some science. This correspondent was somewhat saddened, but somewhat encouraged by the piece in the San Francisco Chronicle earlier this week about how they have found one remaining specimen of old-growth redwood, one in the Oakland Hills. Apparently this tree was spared because it was in a ravine and grew out of a boulder, which I guess made it hard to cut down. But sadly, between 1845 and 1860, what was probably one of the greatest swaths of of giant redwoods uh, anywhere was felled to build homes in the Bay Area. By 1860, uh, they thought none were left, but it turns out, well, one was left, and they just stumbled upon it. Surprising to note that uh, there was a rock in the present location of Treasure Island that was quite a navigational hazard to early shipping, and some uh, ship's captain had figured out you could sight some of these trees up in the Oakland Hills and thus avoid the hazard, and uh, And uh, once the trees were cut down, I guess a lot of ships went down. But the piece does note that it is believed that possibly the largest redwood trees anywhere were in Oakland. The current record holder for the tallest redwood in the world measures uh, about a 26-foot diameter. They have found stumps of redwoods in the Oakland Hills measuring 31 to 32 feet across. And from those stumps, a lot of second growth uh, has reappeared. There still are redwoods up in the Oakland Hills, but uh, not what it once was. They did note rather curiously that, of course, these trees live centuries. They think that that the current current old growth tree is about 500 years old, but redwoods can live for thousands of years. The studies indicate that where they grow in the Oakland Hills seems to be immune to the increase in temperatures we've been seeing uh, over the past couple decades. There has been uh, a very small bump in the fog belt that comes in right across the Golden Gate. And by the way, I had a discussion with a friend of mine who lives in Marin County talking about how he was thinking about moving over to Berkeley. Having just gotten a car and observed a, a drop in temperatures from 81 in Hayward to 67 in Emeryville, I suggested that uh, in his relatively fog-free ravine in Marin County, he, he may just wish to stay. Perfect weather for redwood trees, maybe not so perfect for homo sapiens. Here's a curious item we've been sitting on for a while. Um, from New Scientist magazine, apparently ships are inadvertently fertilizing our oceans, which may have some uh, role to play in some of our plans to put iron in the ocean and, and cause algal uh, blooms that will then sink and sequester carbon dioxide. This has been causing a lot of controversy, but somebody noticed that, hey, the ships that are already out there are fertilizing our oceans. According to a piece by Jeff Hecht 
in New Scientist. Soot from oil-burning ships is dumping about 1,000 tons of soluble iron per year across 6 million square kilometers of ocean. There's some concern that these geoengineering experiments could really radically change uh, the ecosystems. They quote uh, someone from the University of East Anglia in the UK is saying that uh, experiments suggest you change the population of algae, causing a shift from fish-dominated to jellyfish-dominated ecosystems, which frankly sounds like a bummer. Peace notes that such concerns led the UN Convention on Biological Diversity to impose a moratorium on geoengineering experiments. But uh, they note that the annual ship deposition is much larger, if less concentrated, than the iron that's been released in field tests carried out so far. Because you have to like, like this, this aside. A think tank that consults for the Convention on Biological Diversity notes that since these ships are sailing about inadvertently fertilizing the ocean, this doesn't... Uh, contravene the ban. Now, if they were deliberately trying to put iron by sailing back and forth, then it would, and then it would be banned. Sadly, this piece does not come to any conclusions about whether meaningful information can be gathered from these uh, inadvertent experiments. But it's going on regardless, so we can hope that some bright sparks will be able to take a look at the data and, uh, and, and learn a thing or two, because frankly, we need to learn a thing or two. And quick. All right, let's, let's close off with one item that I think uh, is, is leaving this correspondent a bit puzzled. Apparently, going gluten-free is all the rage. But um, I'm not sure this is medically sound. Now, you learn in medical school about gluten enteropathy, or celiac sprue, which is a condition where um, the protein gluten, which is in wheat, induces a kind of immune response that causes all kinds of gastrointestinal problems. It's a real deal, and it is estimated that about 1% of the world's population, meaning perhaps 3 million Americans, is estimated to suffer from celiac sprue. Apparently what may be driving this uh, current trend is that um, alternative medicine has labeled this leaky gut syndrome, which um, conventional medicine has (laughs) not accepted. Their theory is that gluten causes inflammation in the intestinal tract, which it can in people that really have the condition, causing it to become too permeable and allowing bacteria, toxins, and undigested food to leak into the bloodstream. Okay, okay, hold the phone. Undigested food leaking into the bloodstream. According to the alternative medicine people, this invasion of unfiltered substances into the blood in turn triggers the immune system to kick in and overreact creating the chronic state of inflammation. Advocates of gluten-free diets say leaky gut syndrome can lead to a wide variety of symptoms, including abdominal bloating, cramps, asthma, allergies, skin rashes, and autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Peace in the Week quotes Linda Lee, director of the Johns Hopkins Integrative Medicine and Digestive Center, saying that they don't know much about leaky gut syndrome, but they know now that it exists. Adding... Quote, in the absence of evidence, we don't know what it means or what therapies can directly address it, unquote. I don't know. This correspondent uh, tends to suspect that a lot of this is just one big fad. Not all of it, of course, because some people really do have celiac disease. But probably a lot fewer people than the 30% of adults who say they want to cut down on gluten or eliminate it from their diets altogether. And the market for gluten-free foods has exploded in recent years, growing at a rate of 
28% per year. It's now reached $4.2 billion in sales as of 2012. And apparently um, one in five adult consumers now buys gluten-free foods. All right, I promise you we'll continue to look into that. But let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Know the what you eat. 